our text today will be Genesis 35, verse 16, down to Genesis 37, verse 1. 35, 16 to 37, verse 1. One of the convenience stores features a drink called the Big Gulp. I think it's about 40 ounces or so, isn't it? Almost more than you can hold, let alone drink. That's how I feel about our text this morning. This is the Big Gulp. Almost more than we can read, let alone explain. I always like to read these long lists of names. It makes you feel better, I'm sure, that uh, no one can read these well. But for the great number of verses that we have uh, before us this morning, there really are very few details to talk about. And I don't think that's an accident. I, I think God wants us to stand back and look a big picture here. It's a contrast not just between two brothers, but between two peoples. All the descendants of Jacob and all the descendants of his twin brother Esau. That's what we find in this text. So let me, uh, let me read it for you and just bear with me, beginning with verse 16 of chapter 35 all the way through chapter 36. Then they moved on from Bethel. While there was still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty, and so she was having great difficulty, so as she, and as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't be afraid, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni. But his father named him Ben-Yamin, or Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder, while Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, concubine Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Jacob had twelve sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, and the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's maidservant Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's maidservant Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years, then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. This is the account of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the women of Canaan, Ada, daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Oholibamah, daughter of Anna, and granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite. Also Basimoth, daughter of Ishmael, and sister of Nebaioth. Adah bore Elipaz to Esau, Basimoth bore Ruel, and Oholibamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in Canaan. Esau took his wives and sons and daughters and all the members of his household as well as his livestock and all his other animals and all the goods he had acquired in Canaan and moved to a land some distance from his brother Jacob. Their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The land where they were staying could not support them both, both, could not support them both because of their livestock. 
So Esau, that is Edom, settled in the hill country of Seir. This is the account of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Adah, and Ruel, the son of Esau's wife, Bethmoth. The sons of Eliphaz, Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Esau's son, Eliphaz, also had a concubine named Timnah, who bore Amalek. These were grandsons of Esau's wife, Adah. The sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zeroth, Shammah, and Mizah, these were grandsons of Esau's wife, wife Besmoth. The sons of Esau's wife, Oholibamah, daughter of Anna and granddaughter of Zibion, whom she bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These were the chiefs among Esau's descendants. The sons of Elipaz were the, the firstborn of Esau. Chief, chiefs Timon, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These were the chiefs descended from Elipaz and Edom and were grandsons of Adah. The sons of Esau's son Ruel, chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Misah. These were the chiefs descended from Ruel and Edom and were the grandsons of Esau's wife Besamah. The sons of Esau's wife Ohilibamah, chiefs Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These were the chiefs descended from Esau's wife Ohilibamah, daughter of Anna. These were the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these were their chiefs. These are the sons of, of Seir, the Horite, who were living in the region. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anath, Dishan, Ezar, and Dishan. These sons of Seir and Edom were Horite chiefs. The sons of Lotban, Hori, and Homam, Timnah was Lotan's sister. The son of Shobal, Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. The sons of Zibion, Ayah and Anna. This is, Anna who, this is the Anna who discovered the hot springs in the desert while he was grazing the donkeys of his father Zibion. The children of Anna, Dishon and Ohilabamah, daughter of Anna. The, the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshbon, Ithron, and Keron. The sons of Ezar, Bilham, Zaavan, and Achan. The sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aaron. These are the Horite chiefs, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anath, Dishon, Ezar, and Dishan. These were the Horite chiefs according to their divisions in the land of Seir. These were the kings who reigned in Edom before any Israelite king reigned. Bela, son of Beor, became king of Edom. His city was named Dinhaba. When Bela died, Jobab, the son of Zerah from Bozrah, succeeded, succeeded him as king. When Jobab died, Hushan, from the land of the Temanites, succeeded him as king. When Husham died, Hadad, son of Abindad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, succeeded him as king. His city was named Avith. When Hadad died, Shamlah, from Masrachah, succeeded him as king. When Shamlah died, Shaul, from Rehoboth on the river, succeeded him as king. When Shaul died, Baal Hanath, son of Akbor succeeded him as king. When Baal Hanath, son of Akbor, died, Hadad succeeded him as king. His city was named Pau, and his wife's name was Mehitabel, daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahah. These were the chiefs descended from Esau by name according to their clans and regions. Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Ohilabamah, Elath, Pinon, Kenaz, Taman, Mibzar, Megiel, and Iram. 
These were the chiefs of Edom according to their settlements in the land they occupied. This was Esau, the father of the Edomites. 37.1. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And there we end. There are two things I want us to learn from this text this morning as we look at these two peoples. And uh, consider the second one first, the account of Esau and his descendants, which is what fills chapter 36, this great long list of names. The lesson we learn from, from them is this, that sometimes the wicked prosper. Sometimes the wicked prosper. You know, there's a widespread notion in our day that uh, we can make some judgment about God's opinion of a person's work by looking how well God seems to be blessing him. So someone might say, well, he must be doing something right. God sure is blessing his work. Oh, really? It's that easy, huh? Well, here in Genesis 36, we see that God sometimes blesses the wicked. Sometimes it's the wicked who prosper. Make no mistake, God considers Esau wicked. That doesn't mean that he's as bad as he could be, and I'm sure if we knew Esau from what we know of his life, uh, if we would probably consider him a pretty interesting fellow. We might uh, like to have him as a friend. But God considered him wicked. Remember when he traded his birthright for a bowl of stew? God said he despised that birthright. And in spite of God's instruction to keep themselves separate from the world, when Esau was grown and uh, wanted to get married, what did he do? He went and married not one but two local pagan Hittite women. And later when he learned how his parents found those worldly women so unacceptable and wanted something better for their other son, Jacob, what did Esau do? Just despite them, he went and married a yet another one. Pagan woman. This is a wicked man. As for the promises of God that uh, he'd given to Abraham, to Isaac after him, that he was going to give them this land of promise, make of them a great nation, Esau didn't care a thing about that. In fact, in this passage, we have Esau moving further away, completely out of this land. He cares nothing about those promises of God. Indeed, the New Testament holds Esau up as a prime example of a wicked man. In Hebrews 12, we read, See to it that no one is godless like Esau. If you have to pick someone who's really godless, who would it be? Well, the writer of Hebrews says, well, like Esau. Esau was a wicked man. The late Dr. James Boyce points out another way, another indicator of Esau's lack of concern for the things of God, one that I wouldn't have noticed, but uh, it's interesting to, to, to note. You know that in the Bible, children's names were used to communicate something. They, people didn't pick names quite like we pick names, uh, just because we liked the sound of it. It was a family name, but very often the names meant something. Consequently, biblical names often point us to the parents' faith in the Lord. Very often, uh, children's names included God's name in some way. So, for example, the name Joshua means Jehovah saves. And the name Nathaniel means uh, a gift of God. And the name Isaiah means salvation of Jehovah. But in Esau's family, in all the 81 names that we read here in, uh, in uh, Genesis 36, there are only two names that have anything to do with the Lord, and they're in the very first generation. After that, 
All those other names are named for things of the senses. Adah means ornament. Elipaz means pure gold. Dishon means gazelle, etc. Indeed, toward the end of the list, there's even one king who's named for an idol. The idol Baal. In verse 38, Baal Hanan. Well, make no mistake, Esau is a wicked man and produces a wicked clan. Far from the faith of his father and his grandfather. And yet Esau prospered. That's what this chapter is about. Esau prospered. The chapter consists of four lists of names, four genealogies. First of all, we have the account of the wives and the children born to them, Esau's sons, before he left the promised land of Canaan, in about the first eight verses or so. And then there's a list of Esau's sons and grandsons who became chiefs in the land of Edom, or as it's called alternately, Seir, for the next three generations. And then thirdly, we have a list of the chiefs of the Horites. Uh, Jacob conquered these aboriginal chiefs and intermarried with the most prominent families. And so Esau is becoming very powerful in the land of Edom. His sons are becoming chiefs of, of, uh, of clans, and he's subjugating the other clans to himself so that it can be said, Edom is Esau. And then finally, fourthly, there's a list of eight generations of kings who reigned in Edom before Israel ever had her first king. You see, this is a thumbnail picture of Esau's power and success. Esau said, forget about Canaan, and he moved up in the hill country of Edom, and he made it into a great nation for generations to come. Esau prospered and exercised power and wealth in Edom. Meanwhile, what was Jacob's family doing during that time? Well, they were wandering around Canaan as uh, pilgrim strangers and aliens. When the famine came, they wandered down to Egypt where Joseph was. And they spent 400 years in Egypt becoming slaves until God finally delivered them. And then they wandered in the desert for 40 years under Moses' leadership. And then Joshua brought them into the land of Canaan. And they took the land of Canaan and then they were ruled by a number of judges for a long period of time. And then God raised up Samuel the prophet who led them. Until finally Samuel anointed a king, the first king, which was Saul. David to follow him. All that time, all that time, Esau was prospering in Edom. We're talking 850 years. Edom prospered and had generations of powerful kings. Well, Jacob's descendants are a bunch of nomads. Alan Ross sums it up. Esau moved to Seir with his sons and then with his grandsons, controlled the land, conquering the Horites. It is no wonder that he had 400 men to accompany him to meet Jacob 
The passage shows Esau over tribes and kings and districts. Here was the political structure of the nation. No one could doubt that Esau was flourishing. He dwelt with the fatness of the earth. He lived by the sword and he shook off the yoke of his brother from his neck. You see, sometimes the wicked prosper. Prosper big time. This is a problem for God's people sometimes, you know. How can God allow the wicked to prosper? While some of his faithful ones are wandering around in the desert. David had a problem with this. He tells us in Psalm 73, listen, let me just read a pretty good bit of it. He says, as for me, my feet almost slipped. I, I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued with human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From callous hearts comes iniquity. Evil conceits of their minds knows no limit. They scoff. They speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up their waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have any knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. David concludes, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. I feel like a fool, he says. Why have I worked to be pure and worked to guard my heart? The wicked are getting rich and powerful and prospering. David's faith almost slipped when he realized how the wicked could prosper. It was only when he got his eyes on the Lord and saw the eventual destiny of the wicked, he realized how foolish he had become. He goes on in that psalm to describe the change in his thinking. He said, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. How suddenly... They're destroyed, completely swept away by terror. When my heart was grieved, when my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He concludes, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire but you, Lord. Dear friends, we, we, we live in a world of covetousness. We see prosperity and we want our peace of it. It's the American dream. Why should others have so much and I should struggle? Why? I won't stand for that. Oh, but don't even start down that dirt road of envy and discontentment. Sure, the wicked prosper sometimes. But their end is certain judgment. Meanwhile, God has called you for himself. And while we're careful not to envy the wicked, also be careful not to try to gauge God's approval by people's prosperity. Like I said before, we're so inclined to do that. Boy, the Lord must be smiling on you, we might say to some prosperous person. Boy, God must be in this because it's thriving. Have you noticed how this is growing? God must be in this, we might be heard to say. Oh, but once we have concluded that prosperity equates with God's approval, 
we're on a road that leads to total confusion about our faith. A road that leads to hopeless pragmatism. For you see, that's not true. God's approval is always based on faithfulness to his word. Whether it prospers, succeeds, or seems to fail. While he may sometimes grant his faithful children great success, sometimes it's the wicked who prosper. That was true of Jacob and Esau. Esau, the wicked, prospered. Jacob didn't. Well, back to our story. So what's happening to Jacob and his family? Well, Esau goes off to make it big in Edom. And what can we learn from Jacob? If we learn from Esau that sometimes the wicked prosper, what can we learn from Jacob? Which brings us to the other point this morning. That's this, that God prunes his pilgrim people. God prunes his pilgrim people. As many of you know, because I'm very quick to tell you, I take great, great pride in my fence made of 39 apple trees. If you've been to my house, you know I've shown it to you probably. The process is called espalia. While other trees are being allowed to grow tall and wide and impressive, my trees were being severely pruned. And every little branch that remained was being tied down by its throat to some wire or stick or something to grow exactly, forced to grow exactly where I wanted it to grow. And so it took five or six years for these little trees to grow to a height of about seven feet where a normal tree would have grown in about two years. Ah, but when it's complete, in this form that's called a Belgian fence, it's a sight to behold. All these trees bearing fruit in formation, a work of art, not just uh, farming. That's what God does with his people. God prunes his pilgrim people. When we read God's renewal of his covenant promises in in verse 11 and 12 here, where he says to Jacob now, like he had said to Abraham and Isaac, I'm going to give you the land and I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to make you a great people and prosper you. We would assume now Jacob is on a fast track. Now things are going to look up for him. Now there's going to be peace and prosperity and success. But when we read the rest of the chapter there at the end of chapter 35, what we find is quite different. For we find a a, a whole series of troubling incidents, the last of which is his dad dies. What's going on? I would suggest God is pruning Jacob. That's what he does. God prunes his pilgrim people. Let me just uh, discuss uh, three incidents here. The first one is actually before uh, what we read this morning. It's the death of Deborah. We passed that over last week up in verse 8. We just didn't say anything about it. We saved it for this week. Let me just read verse. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and was buried under the oak oak below Bethel. So it was named Alon Pakuth. We don't know much about Deborah. Deborah is Rebecca's nurse. Rebecca is Jacob's mother. 
when Rebecca, Jacob's mother, was a young girl and left her home to go marry Isaac, Jacob's father, her parents sent a nurse with her, a, a, a handmaid with her. We learned that at the time, several chapters ago, but we never even knew her name. Now we hear her name was Deborah. That's all we know about her. We don't even know how she came to be living with Jacob, except that here she is, a loved part of this family and mourned when she died. But why is this even mentioned, this story of Deborah? Why is it even mentioned? Well, Bible scholars point out an interesting thing to us here. They point out that Deborah's death is being reported in order to bring Rebecca to mind without mentioning her name. In other words, Rebecca is being intentionally gapped in the story, not mentioned in the story, although the mention of Deborah can't help but make us think, oh yeah, Rebecca, whatever happened to her? Well, remember, it was her plan to deceive her husband and steal the birthright for Jacob. And what happened to her after that? We don't know. We never hear another word about her. She is just gapped in the story from then on. Later, quite incidentally, we learned that she had been buried the same place that uh, her husband was. Now, why would Rebecca, Jacob's own mother, be gapped so shamefully? Because God prunes his pilgrim people, that's why. He removes everything that does not conform to his perfect plan, even a mother. Or consider another example here. The death of Rachel, recorded in verses 16 to 20. As Jacob and his family move out of Bethel, Rachel begins to give birth to Benjamin. Things do not go well, and she dies in childbirth. So though Jacob got his twelfth son, who with the others would become the twelve tribes of Israel, and they're all listed for us there in verses 23 to 26. Though the twelve sons were completed, Jacob lost his favorite wife. The one he had labored seven years for, and then when he was tricked, labored seven more years because he was taken with her beauty. He buried her near Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Why would God bring such trouble into Jacob's life? I would suggest it was part of his pruning of his pilgrim people. For you see, while Rachel was Jacob's favorite, Rachel was not a godly woman. Remember when she could not have children, what did she do? Did she humble herself and cry out to God like Hannah would later when she couldn't have children? No, not Rachel. She got angry and she struck out at her husband and said, Give me some children or, or I'm going to die. And then, when it still didn't happen, she adopted the world's methods, and she gave her handmaiden Bilhah to her husband to have children as a surrogate mother, so she would have a family. And then remember, even after that, you remember her bitter rivalry with her sister Leah? 
Recall how she resorted to magic in the mandrake incident? Oh, this little magic portion, these mandrake plants, that'll make me have children. I'll have to trust the Lord, I can use magic. And then when they left Padam Aram, remember what happened? She stole her father's idols, lied about it while she's sitting on them so he wouldn't find her out. And even in her death here, she names her son, Son of My Trouble. What a name to hang on a kid. Fortunately, Jacob had the good sense to change it, say, Son of My Right Hand. Rachel's thinking of herself right to the bitter end. But God prematurely removed her from Jacob's family. Why? Well, we have to admit we don't know. We can only speculate. But we know that God's ways are that he prunes his people. He prunes his people. Might he remove even the favorite wife who is an ungodly influence in the family? Yes, he might. Finally, there's this third incident, this ugly incident regarding Jacob's son, Reuben. After Rachel's death, Reuben goes in and sleeps with his father's concubine, Bilhah. It's a kind of sin that Reuben condemned back at Shechem when Shechem slept with his sister, Dinah. But now he's guilty of something worse. He's defiling his father's wife. Now this was probably not a, a, an act motivated by lust. It was probably a power play. Well, you see, Reuben knew that Jacob favored Rachel over his mother, Leah. Reuben's mother, Leah. Now that Rachel was gone, he didn't want Rachel's handmaiden, Bilhah, to become the favored wife. No, Reuben was jealous for his own place as the firstborn. And so he defiles Bilhah, which leaves his mother, Leah, the prominent wife, and leaves him in his position as the firstborn. In fact, this may have been an attempt to seize the family leadership even while Jacob was still alive. When it happened, Jacob heard about it, but he didn't say anything, which is a, a, another amazing lack of leadership that we can't comprehend. But later, when Jacob was blessing his sons, he remembered this incident, and he removed, from, removed Reuben from any leadership in, in Israel. So why is this incident here? What's God teaching us? Well, again, I would suggest he's teaching us that God prunes his pilgrim people. God is working to prune his people. You see, in God's great design, Christ Jesus, the Messiah, was to be born of the lineage of Judah. The only problem is Judah is not in line to rule at all. The firstborn is in line to rule. That's Reuben. Judah is number four. Ah. But Simeon and Levi dishonored their father by slaughtering the men of Shechem. And he was displeased with them. And now, and now Reuben dishonors his father by sleeping with his concubine. And he's displeased with him. And so God in his providence has pruned away the top three slots in the, 
in the sons of Israel, which leaves who? Judah, number four, as the prominent son from whom one called the Lion of Judah was to be born, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the firstborn. God is cutting and bending and tying down and training Jacob's family, God's chosen pilgrim people, to conform them perfectly to God's plan. Folks, you see, all this account about Jacob, this isn't just about Jacob at all. This is about God's great salvation, which is being unfurled through the ages until it is finally seen in full glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. This story of the Bible is like a huge tapestry with Jesus Christ and his saving work as, the, as a focal point, the, the, the beautiful center, the, the, the goal of the whole cloth. But that beautiful gospel doesn't just come out of nowhere. It's not a patch that's sewn in the middle of history. No, even at the beginning of the weaving, there are these colors. There are these strands of thread, these strands of thought, these concepts which are woven together. They're already here in the life of Judah, uh, uh, of Jacob. They're already here in the 12 tribes of Judah. They were already here in, in Abraham and in Noah before him. And they're woven together in this display of this tapestry until they finally come together in the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's going on here. And even this idea of God pruning his pilgrim people only points us to Jesus. For Jesus comes and he says, I'm the true vine, not just Israel. That's not the vine. That's the, the, the foreshadowing of the vine. I am the true vine, and you are my branches, and my father is the farmer. Now, if you don't bear fruit in me, you will be cut off and put in a pile and burned. And those who do bear fruit will be pruned back and tied down and forced to grow just right until they will do exactly what I want and bear the kind of fruit that I want because I'm the vine and you are my branches. Such is the life of God's pilgrim people. It was true way back in Jacob's life. And it's true for us now in Christ. That's what this was pointing to. What the wicked do and how they may prosper, that means nothing to us. For we are strangers and pilgrims. God's holy people, pruned and trained according to his design. That's what God does with his people. Oh dear folks, don't despise the discipline of the Lord, for he disciplines those he loves. Of course it's difficult. It's difficult always being a pilgrim, a stranger, an alien. We want to settle down and, and, and enjoy the wealth and call it home. But God has called us to be a pilgrim people. And yes, it's difficult to undergo pruning. None of us like to feel the cuts of some of our favorite things. None of us like to be forced and tied down and made to grow in ways we don't want to grow. But this is the way of discipleship, you see. And it was for Jacob, and it is for us in Christ. Job knew it in his anguished grief. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
Psalm 66 reflects on it. It says, praise our God, O people. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, O God, tested us. And you refined us like silver. You brought us into prison. You laid burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads and we went through fire and water. But you brought us to a place of abundance. God prunes his pilgrim people according to his plan. In 1869, Elizabeth Payson Prentice wrote something similar in the familiar hymn. Let sorrow do its work. Sin grieve for pain. Sweet are thy messengers. Sweet their refrain when they can sing with me. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More, more love to thee. That's the point. God pruning his pilgrim people. Every day as we read the newspaper or watch television, we are constantly being told how we're all alike. We may call our gods by different names, but we're all alike. We may have different customs and speak different languages, but we're all alike. The terrorists alone are out of step with the rest of the world, but the rest of the world are peace-loving, God-fearing people who pray to the same God and want the same peace. Well, Genesis 36 and 30, or 35 and 36 remind us that that's not true. Since about chapter 4 of Genesis, there's been a clear division between two peoples. There are the people who worship and obey the true God, and there's everybody else. There are the descendants of Abraham, whom God chose to be the father of the faithful. And then there's everybody else. There are the descendants of the child of promise, Abraham's son Isaac. And then there's the other son Ishmael and everybody else. There are the descendants of, of, of the pilgrim descendants of Jacob. And then there's Esau, along with Ishmael, and everybody else in the world. And that division continues in history until it comes to the greatest divider ever, the Lord Jesus Christ. For there are those who trust and obey Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the son of David, the heir to his throne. There are those who trust and, and obey the Lord Jesus, who died on the cross for sinners and rose victorious as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And there's everybody else. There are the true believers in Jesus, those, uh, th those who know him and have eternal life. And then there's the rest of the world that is without God and without hope. There is no middle ground. That's what we have recorded here. Two peoples. No middle ground. Oh, it doesn't look like we might expect. We would think, well, the people of God will be the prosperous ones and the wicked will bring themselves to down. Well, not necessarily sometimes. The wicked prosper and seem to be on top of the world holding the wealth and the power in their hands. But God knows his own. He knows those who are in Christ. And God prunes and trains 
and preserves his pilgrim people for eternal life, not according to the world's expectation or even your expectation or mine, but according to his perfect plan. So which side are you on? Which people are you part of? Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross every day and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my, for my sake and for the gospel will find it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Two sides. Those who take up the cross and follow him, the Christ, and this wicked and adulterous nation which might seem to prosper, but is coming to nothing. Which side are you on? Amen. Thank you, Father, for your word that has something to teach us even when we despair to read it and wonder why it's even here. Thank you that you preserve, have preserved a people for yourself in your grace. For, Lord, we know that those that you've called your own have no more claim on you than the wicked, for we are the wicked. And yet, by your grace, you've chosen to snatch us from judgment and to change us and make us like you. And we thank you, Lord, for your great grace and mercy to us in Jesus. Thank you for the way that we saw, see your work all the way back in the life of Jacob and Esau. How that in the midst of Esau's prosperity, you were still pruning and leading and guiding through painful ways often, a pilgrim people for yourself, a people from whom our Lord Jesus would descend a people from whom salvation would come to the whole world. And now, Lord, we realize that it's still true, that in Christ uh, we too are a pilgrim people, strangers in this world, sometimes prosperous, but often not, sometimes oppressed and made fun of. But, Lord, may we understand what you're doing and what a great privilege it is, and may we give allegiance to you and take up our cross every day and follow you, and may we not uh, sacrifice it sell our soul for a bowl of the world's soup like Esau. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.